I'd like to take a moment and express our sympathies to the Gallaghers. Uh, many of you know John and Annette and their family, and John's mom passed away earlier this past week, and uh, the funeral was late this past week, and so we pray for them. It's great to have them in our services today, and it's always a hard, hard thing to lose a parent, and uh, so our prayers are with you. Um, you know, uh, preparing this message this morning brought back a lot of old memories, Right? Because the, the subject matter we're going to be talking about brings us into a lot of the parent-child dynamic, right? And, and so it just brought back all kinds of memories, right? I, I remember when our kids were really small, like infants, and it was my turn to get up in the middle of the night and to rock them and try to get them back to sleep, which was not near as often as it was my wife's turn to get up and rock them back to sleep. And, and I remember just, you know, I think to myself, I want to whisper into their ears the word mommy, because I want that to be the first name out of their mouths, right? So when they wake up at 2.30 in the morning, they say, mommy, right? You know, and, and I'd whisper, says, grow up, move out. Stay out. You know, that's right. I just repeated that over and over again. Just that early foundation, you know. And it, and, and, and it brings back a lot of memories of this interesting thing. Because even in the healthiest relationships as parents with our children, right? Or as children with our parents. Even in the healthiest of those, there is going to be a process, a dynamic that's going to create conflict as our children move from total dependence to being fully independent. Correct? I mean, somewhere along the line in there, their, their desire and their need to be independent is going to kind of clash with the fact that they are still dependent upon us. And a couple of memories that came back to my, me is one of these, I think I was 16 years of age, you know, and, and it was one of these days I, I came home from school, I came home from practice, and for whatever reasons, either mom or dad was waiting on me, I didn't have enough time to take a shower before I left to the facility. So when we sat down at the table, I had my hat on, right? Because my head was just a sweaty mess, right? And so my dad, who was an old-time farm boy from Missouri, says, take your hat off at the table. And I said, no, my, my, you know, my hair's all sweaty, whatever, you know? And he's like... And, and, and then I said, oh, you know, it's my head. I should be able to wear what I want on it, right? <laughs> Tried that, right? And he says to me, but it's my table, and it's my house. <laughs> and I say, and, and, it, and it just got ugly from there. It just got ugly from there, right? It just kept outside yelling and screaming, and I'm crying. It was just awful, right? You know, and, and, and it was really my fault, because my responsibility was to honor my father, and I didn't do it. But it just highlights that interesting dynamic, right? You know, or some of it, you know, like your, your kid makes the, the, the school basketball team or whatever, and they come home, oh, these are the sneakers I got to have, right? You know, and, and you go to the store, and they're $199, and you're thinking, you know what? Their feet are growing like at one size a month, right? These are going to last like a month, right? And, but for the, they got to have, you know, so they know what they want. They're just dependent upon you to pay for it. And it gets kind of interesting, does it not? 
right? You know, and sometimes it's not even with just your own kids. You know, some of you have met Arthur, and congratulations to Arthur. Arthur graduated from Endicott's school, uh, Van, Loan, Van Loan School this week with his MBA, and so we had the privilege of being a part of that. But when Arthur first came here, he was living in Quincy with another family and going to school to finish high school on the South Shore, and to give them a break, right, we would have him come stay with us sometimes on the weekend, you know, and he would make his arrangements to hang out with his friend and wanted to arrive in, in, in Worcester like on the midnight train. And it's like, and he didn't drive. He didn't have a car. He didn't have any money. He, he was dependent upon us, right? And it's like, I ain't picking you up at midnight. I don't care, right? You know, and the list just kind of goes on and on through that whole thing. But the reason I bring that up is that as our children mature, they do eventually grow up and move out, and, in some, and eventually they're going to stay out, right, kind of idea in most cases, and, and that's happened with our two children, and we actually now lo- lo- love those times when we can get together with them, right, and that kind of thing, and so they move from dependence, and then there's this really kind of this messy time when they're trying to exercise their independence, and they're still dependent upon us, but then they get to a place when they're truly independent, they don't need your money anymore. They don't need your lodgings, that kind of stuff. You hope they still want your advice in the midst of all of that. And then there's probably going to become a time where I'm going to be dependent upon them, right, you know, down the road to take care of me. But spiritually, when you back up and you think about this issue, we th- human maturity, the way we do life here in this world, right, human maturity is moving from a place of total dependence Saw a couple of great nephews yesterday that are just barely over a month old, right? Totally dependent to being fully independent. But spiritually, the journey of maturity is the other direction, right? We've we've learned how to do life without God, and spiritual maturity is about working our way back to being fully dependent on God. And so this dynamic that comes up for us is not something that goes away as we get older. It's something that actually gets more challenging. Because you start asking yourself the question, what does it look like as a grown adult who has to hold down a job, has a family, have all these other kinds of responsibilities, how do I take those and consistently submit that to the lordship of God over my life? How do I be mature while being fully dependent upon God. And it's that issue that James takes us into today in our text. And if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to the book of James. If you happen to be visiting us today, just a little backstory. We've been working through the book of James now since Easter. And we've been trying to look at the kind of faith that's required in order for us to be people who follow after the one who walked out of the grave alive. And so we've been looking at some issues of what real faith looks like. And one of the most dominant themes in the book of James is this question. He says, if you're going to have real faith, you can't do life by worldly wisdom. You're going to do life by godly wisdom. You can't do it by worldly wisdom. You're going to do it by godly wisdom. 
And he's processed that not only in the way that we sometimes evaluate people. We show favoritism. If people are rich and powerful or good-looking or skilled or whatever, we have a tendency to flock to them. But we want to take the poor guy that doesn't smell so good and, and devalue him. He says you can't do life that way. And then he talks about the way we use our mouths, right? We can't use our mouths the same way that the world does to be able to vent our anger or achieve our own results or whatever. It can't be a place where there's blessing and cursings coming out. We, the same mouth that we use to sing praises to the God who's so good can't be something that's got destructive stuff in it. It has to change because we're changing on the inside. You know, then he also talks about faith. You know, the difference is that, you know, the, the, the kind of faith that we have is the kind of faith, worldly wisdom is, all right, I believe this stuff, I'm good, let's not get too excited about it. Godly wisdom says, I can't just be a hearer of the word, I've got to be a doer of it. And I can't just say to those who are in need, well, you know, I feel for you, God bless, but we've got to actually do something about it. And, and so he's walking through all these things, and today he gets to a passage of Scripture and, they're, and, they're, and, and they're, we're going to look at two sections. We're going to look at them at one by one, beginning in chapter 4, verse 13. If you're using one of the Bibles that's underneath your chairs, it's on page 1027. Uh, 1027. We're going to look at verses 13 through 17 of chapter 4, and then we're going to stop and process through it, come up with some truths about what he's teaching us. And then in verses 1 through 6, we're going to go through chapter 5, and um, the first six verses of chapter five. And I must be confessional to you. You know, one of the things I really look for often when I'm teaching out of the word of God is I, I want to have that wow point, that one thing that really connects. And I got to tell you, this stuff is just so fundamental. But at the same time, because it's so fundamental, it's so hard to get your hands on. I'm kind of I'm wondering if it's just going to kind of go and it's not going to have as much so I'm counting on you to reel in some of the truths as they come flying out at you as we go along. So let's just read this, because again, you know, our, our objective every week is to make sure we just understand the Bible better than when we walked in. And if we know the truth, the truth then will set us free. So we have this phrase at the beginning of verse 13 that says, come now, right? And, and it's just like, so, and, and this is what ties it together with chapter 5, the first six verses of chapter 5, is this phrase, come now. And, and James is kind of like, you know, all right, hey, listen, come on, listen up, pay attention to this stuff, right? It says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. It says, you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. You don't know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. For you're like a smoke that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Doesn't that make you feel good? Right? <laughs> you're like a smoke that appears and it just vanishes, right? We'll come back there. Instead, this is what you should be saying. If the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So it's a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. So let's walk through this text together. James is, is writing to 
the, his primary audience in the first century, this is, again, the very first letter that's written in the New Testament, first piece of inspired writing that we have after the death of Christ, before any of the Gospels, before any of that. We have James writing to us, and he's writing to a church that is dominated by Jewish Christians, right? The, the church is spreading, and Paul's going to start writing to the, to the churches that are dominated by Gentiles, right, by non-Jews. But he's writing primarily to the Jewish sector of the church, and these Jews have been driven out of Palestine, and their lives have been transformed, right? Not only because of the Romans and other kinds of things, but then because of the persecution that came because of their faith in Christ. They were forced to flee, and what that did is it drove them off of their farms and drove them into the marketplace. Right? Beforehand, they were agriculture. It was all about the land, right? The 12 tribes get the land, right? And everybody, you hold on to it year after year. If somebody dies and they don't have an heir, you raise one up in this place so the land can stay in the family. It was all about the land. And then they're being driven out. And now it's all about being in the market, being merchants. And so they, they just developed this thing. You know what? Hey, you know what? There's this new city going on. Nobody is selling product X there. Let's go there. We'll set up shop. We'll build some relationships. We'll get the supply chain going. And we're going to make some money. And so that's what they're doing over and over again. They're looking around and out of necessity, out of need, out of opportunity, they are looking around and seeing what the possibilities are. And so then they're laying their plans. The problem is, James sees as they're laying their plans without any involvement of their faith in God, right? And so they say, you know what? Hey, you know what? what this is what we're going to do. This is our agenda for the next 18 to 24 months. We're going to travel to X city. We're going to set up shop. We're going to get in this tree. We're gonna, and we're going to make some money. And James says, you know, you're, you're not as smart as you think, right? Because you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. You see, and one of the things he highlights in this journey for us, right, is that you and I, as the people we are constituted to be, in other words, our humanity, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Now, we know from God's word what eternity is going to bring, right? But that's different than tomorrow. And if you and I were great at predicting tomorrow or or the next month or two months, we'd all be super rich, right? Because you'd just invest in the stock market and you'd hit every single stock and we'd all be sitting on a beach having service and we'd be baptizing people in the ocean, right? And the, you know, it'd be just totally, because we would know everything. We don't know anything, right? <laughs> I thought of a couple of examples. You know, when my, my parents passed away, Christina and I inherited the place up in New Hampshire. And so we're going through some of it and we come across two big, huge bins of beanie babies, <laughs> right? Beanie babies. And my mother, I think, bought every single one that came out because they were going to be a good investment. They were going to be worth a fortune. Anybody want a beanie baby? Because you can't give them away anymore, right? You know, that because you can't tell the future, right? Back when I was in high school, leisure suits were in. And you know how sometimes you hold on to clothes because you think they're going to come back into style? Well, you know, I had to get rid of it eventually because I outgrew it in this direction, right, you know? But, I t- you know, they, I don't, leisure suits never came back in style. It would be great, wouldn't it? You didn't have to dry clean them or nothing. They were great, but they're gone, right? If we could tell what tomorrow was going to bring, we'd never have any problems in our lives, right? 
because we could fix it all before it happens. And he's saying, you're you're acting as though you've got control, that you know what's going to happen, that you're playing on a stable field, and you're laying all these plans, but actually you don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring. You don't even know what your life's going to be like tomorrow. And then he says, your life is just like a puff of smoke. You know what the imagery that came to my mind? You know what it's like when you get up in the morning in in the cold weather and you walk outside and your breath you can see your breath? How long does that last? Right? I mean, you, you see your breath coming out, but just literally almost instantaneously it's just gone, right? But you can see your breath. The only thing is if you're wearing a mask or whatever, like trying to snow blow your driveway, then it just fogs up everything on the inside, right? You know, but besides that, it's just gone like that. He said, that's what your life is like. Right? That's what your life is like. And said, you're, so you're laying all these plans. I didn't, I'm not trying to depress you today, right? You know? But he's trying. Life is fragile, and your knowledge is limited. And you are foolish if you're trying to do life without God. You know, I, Christina and I, a, a few years ago, we went to look. Uh, when we were, had extra, Arthur living with us, and we, we looked to see if maybe we should buy a house that just has one more bedroom. So we looked around, and we were looking at a foreclosure here in Sterling. And, and, and it wasn't so much about the story. Was, this is a, a, a man and a woman who lived there, raised their family there. And the husband got to retirement age. And he, and, he, and he was ready to start the business that he had always wanted to run. So they had borrowed money against their house. And he, had, he retired on a Friday. His new store was up and ready, fully outfitted to start on Monday. And he died on Sunday. And his wife had no means to pay back any of the loans. And so the house was in foreclosure and being sold. Because right? we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And life is like a vapor, right? And so he goes on to say, and just to push it, it's not only unwise, it's actually a sin. He said, if you know you should be including God in your decision-making on a daily basis and you don't do it, then it's a sin. That's the way I understand verse 17. How about you? So it's a sin for the person who knows what to do, what is good, who knows to do what is good, and it is good to involve God in the way that we're planning our everyday lives, planning our futures and everything that's in between. That's a good thing to be doing, and when you and I aren't doing it, that's sin. But you could also take this and apply it to way beyond that. But in context, that's what he's saying. It's not just the sins of commission, but it's also the sins of omission that can bring us down. And so he is just begging us to involve God in our planning. He says, so this is the way you should be doing life. If the Lord wills, we'll do this and this tomorrow. Now, you know, the difficulty, and I think this is all, if you will, rooted in the fact that God wants to have a daily relationship with us. He just doesn't want to give us a dump of a formula to follow, and then we can just forget about him and go follow the formula. We really would love it if James would have said, all right, now that I've brought this idea up of planning your future with God, here are the nine steps to how to do that. Wouldn't that be really great? You know, just say, see the footnote at the bottom of the page on how to do that, because that's where most of us are at, right? If we have a heart for God, we don't want to be doing 
We want to be doing the good, right? We want to be saying, you know, if the Lord wills. Well, what does that look like when you're thinking about laying out your retirement planning or how many kids you're going to have or all that kind of stuff, right? What, what, what's, how do you do all of that? How do you involve God in all of that? And, and there's a couple of things that, get, you know, certainly you have to ask the question, is what I'm going to be doing honoring to God? I mean, because if your life objective has become the world's best thief, I don't really think you could say that that's going to be honoring to God, right? Because there's just some fundamental thing. So it has to be, what, are, what? can you also do it successfully and effectively in a godly way? I think it also has to be consistent with God's call on your life, right? And, 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 and there's lots of different dimensions of that, you know? And, and, and speaking of calling, one of my prayers is that we'll have more people from Hope Chapel that have grown up here will actually commit their life to a life of ministry, will want to spend their vocational life serving God, you know, as their career. But there has to be this sense of, is it consistent with your calling, with what God's asking you to do, who God wants you to be? It doesn't mean that every decision we make is something that we don't like, because I think God wants to give us the joys of our heart. But he does want us to clearly ask him, what do you want in this circumstance? You know, and one of the things that Christina and I, when we felt God not only calling us together to live life together, we also, and God was leading me into ministry, we also felt that like God was calling us to serve in New England. And fortunately, the spiritual climate in New England is changing. It's a lot different than when I started ministry 35 years ago, when it was really tough. And, 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 and even tougher for those who went before. And there were many times along the way it was tempting to pick up roots and move to South Carolina or Alabama or Georgia, someplace where there's a lot more Baptists, it's a lot cheaper to live, you can play golf 12 months a year, and they would, and they would pay me more, right? You know, but, but every single time those opportunities began to emerge, I said, that's not consistent with God's call on my life. And you can just start ticking through some of the questions. What I want to assure you today, and I want to go back to a beginning, what James told us in chapter 1, if you're looking for wisdom, if you're looking how to plan your life with God's wisdom mixed into it, if you are sincerely asking, God's going to give it to you without restraint. You're going to get it. It's not, you know, and you're going to get it. But he said, it is absolutely foolish not to do that. I spent way too much time on that section. Now we come to verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. And again, this is tied together by this come now, right? He says, come now, you rich people. All right, how many of you qualify? All right, so this doesn't apply to me because I ain't rich by any stretch. Well, let's process it a little bit. He says, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. He's talking about the future, right? Your wealth is ruined and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your silver and your gold are corroded. I didn't think silver and gold could actually corrode. I thought they could tarnish, but they can't corrode. And that's part of the message in here, right? You, you think you can depend upon this stuff? It's going to let you down. It's going to let you down. Your silver and your gold are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and it's going to eat at your flesh like fire. You stored up treasure in the last days. Last days, there's a reference between the time of, of the ascension of Christ and his second coming, right? And what he's saying is like, you know, you're, you're on the Titanic 
It's already tipped at 30 degrees, and you're running around the stateroom filling your pocket with rings and watches and golds because you, you want to go to the bottom fully loaded, right? You know, he said that. He said, you know, it, it, you know you're, you're living life as though there is no out there, and, and, and you are laying up treasure, the wrong kind of treasure, in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who reaped your fields cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And very different pay structure then. And we, we, you know, like here at Oak Chapel, we do payday twice a month, the 15th and the 30th, or the business day before. In the days of, that James is writing, in the days that Jesus taught, workers got paid every single day. The end of the day, you paid them. You see parables related to that. It, it, it is Jesus teaching. They didn't get paid. Their families didn't eat. And so he says, here you are. You're saying, well, I can't pay you until I sell the harvest, so thanks for working. And when the time, you know, and, and he says, and, and so you, you've withheld the pay from the workers who reaped your fields, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, and you have lived luxuriously on the land and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. And so his imagery there at the end is that judgment day is coming and all you've been doing is piling on the guilt. Piling on the guilt. Now, it's really interesting to ask the question, who is James talking to here? Right? Because as far as we know, the early church didn't have very many rich people in it. Most people were poor. It's actually one of the reasons why they were more open to the Gospels, because they were aware of their need for God. And this life wasn't something that they were really all that keen on clinging to, because their life was bad, was hard. And so they were more open to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and their lives were changed. So there weren't a lot of rich people in the church. And you could have this idea, well, maybe James is just kind of writing to the church, to, to rich people in general. And that would have been very true, very Old Testament minor prophet of him, right? You know, they're always condemning the way the rich people were oppressing the poor people. But those people were all the people of the covenant. So this isn't actually a way to swoon people over, right? You know, you know, it's, uh, you know let, let, me, let me sweeten up the gospel with you by telling you, you're just a pig who's going to the slaughter nice and fat. You know? But it could have been a real wake-up call for them. I actually think that James is highlighting this factor, not only because it was going on, and there could have been some instances of it in the church. But I think he's highlighting this because it's very tempting to those of us who are seeking to live with godly wisdom to be tempted to do it the world's way. Right? Because that's the way that works. You're, you're, you're living in luxury. Right? You've got all that you need. It looks like you've got it made, right? Your bank account is nice and fat, and you've got the nicest clothes, which is actually a form of investment. You've got the best food. You've got the gold and the silver. You are all set. And it's very tempting for those of us who are trying to live with godly wisdom to look over and say, that's the kind of living that works. I want to go do it the world's way. And James is issuing a warning saying, it may look great, but it ain't going to last. It ain't going to last. You got to do it the right way. You gotta, and, and the applications of this truth are so profound, so many different areas of our lives. And, you know, one of the ones that, that, that stood out to me 
you know, was that when we, Christina, this is a long time ago, we've actually, this month, this weekend, we've been in our home for 25 years. We moved in on Memorial Day weekend, 1994. So it's time for another new roof and another new furnace and everything else, because we've been there long enough for all that stuff, right? But I remember when we moved in, we started looking around with realtors for a place to live as we were moving to this area to serve with the denomination. And, and, and they kept trying to push us to a much bigger more expensive house. Because they say, you know, you always buy everything that you can afford, and then you grow into it, right? But we're thinking in the back of our minds, if we do that, we're not going to have money to give the way God wants us to give, the way we've committed to give, and a bunch of other kinds of things, right? And so we, we bought actually a lot less house than we could afford. But the world's way said, go buy the bigger house, stretch yourself into it, it'll be a better investment in the long run. And yet over the years, as, as we've seen people come and go, not only at Hope Chapel, but some people that Christina's interacted with through her business life, it's interesting, you see some of these young families, they show up, and they, and, they, and they give a check for just one week's of piano lessons, and they ask you to hold it for two weeks until they get paid, which means they, have, they don't have pennies in their bank account. And you're thinking, that stress is not worth it for anybody, even though you're living a 3,800-square-foot five-bedroom, three-car garage house that just looks great from the outside. You know, and, and, and he is just pushing us to say, listen, it looks great. They're, you know, their pockets are full. The, 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 the bling is everywhere. They're looking like they're, they're... And it's so tempting to want to live that way. And he says, listen, there's a judgment coming. And you need to understand that that's not what's going to get celebrated. What's going to get celebrated are those who are saying... If the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. And so my invitation to you this morning is really pretty simple. It's just to ask the question as you lay out the plans for your day, for your week, for your month, for your year, for the decade, for the rest of it. Ask the question, what does God want from me? Let me jump on just a little bit as to why that really matters in the long run. Look at verse 7. We're going to go there next week. He said, Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient until he receives it. What he's saying, you may look like you're falling behind and you're not getting the harvest and et cetera because you keep asking the question if the Lord wills and you're trying to do it God's way, all that kind of stuff. You're thinking, ah, you know what? I'm falling behind. They're getting you to... He says, the harvest is going to come from the king if you'll wait on it. Wait on it today. Let's pray together.